Good morning and welcome to Flat Out Recovery. Good morning, boys. Good morning. And how are we today? Good. Very well, sir. A lot better than I used to be when I used to come in with road rage. I don't have road rage anymore. Well, this is a development, really, Ronnie, isn't it? Well, it's changed. It's indicative of recovery at work. The fact that you don't want to kill every other driver and their family and their domestic pets and their neighbours and everybody else around them. I changed because I wanted to better my mood in the mornings. I was just talking to Aaron about it. So I play reggae music now instead of dance music and it's calmed me down. Interesting how that works psychologically, isn't it? Mm. Reggae as opposed to dance music mm. has a very different effect on the brain. Massively. Massive. <laughs> if you're blasting out techno at whatever time in the morning, <laughs> yeah, yeah. it's no surprise that you're getting reactive. Getting wired. Becoming determined to enact vengeance on anyone who's ever crossed your path in the wrong way on the road. Yeah. Well, I'm glad to hear that. It's a major move forward, isn't it? Yeah. It probably saved me some points, slowed my driving down and more aware, probably saved a few lives, potential, potentially. Yes, let's not even go there. How was the mountain, Aaron? The mountain? Yes. We ended up with a load of people from recovery and that was really hard, being on a coach with people for 10 hours. Whoa, yeah. And they're all mostly from a different fellowship, which uh, they all sort of know each other. That was really hard for me. Just being around people was really difficult, but I find that difficult anyway. But it was amazing going up Ben Nevis. And I stayed up there, it was very wet. I was staying next to a sea lock. Didn't realise this at the time. Put my tent next to the river in front of the lock. It's about 12 o'clock at night, I had to move my tent sharpish. <laughs> but it was amazing, yeah, red deer just walking around everywhere. Just got on my bike, riding some parts of the West Highland Way. It was, yeah, it was amazing. Massive learning curve in being self-sufficient drying my clothes on trees and stuff <laughs> but yeah it was nice to be away but then i had to come back to my dry house which is there's loads of problems at the moment living there with different people well actually not different people one person that's usually the way though isn't it yeah yeah definitely and it's a heck of a contrast to come back to i think also it's not just about the contrast it's about the perspective it can give you so you go away for a week that's just solitude then you come back to a situation you left a week ago it gives you a perspective you didn't have yeah you can see things that you couldn't see you can hear things that you couldn't hear and something that was perhaps not the biggest problem is suddenly revealed to be quite significant and you can see why it's that reflective thing isn't it if we take time out we've got space to reflect i ended up isolating quite a lot i was in my volunteering in services. Went away with a few of them lads. We rode from Cambridge to Solihull for a charity. And I found that really difficult as well, being around people and the, the banter, as they want to call it, because I don't think, I don't think it's banter, it was just unacceptable. I, I ended up quitting my volunteering. <laughs> but I think I need to take things back to <coughs> basics. I'm doing far too much. Mm. I tried to do stuff. I tried to run before I could walk. My mental health is atrocious and it needs addressing. I need to do a lot more work on myself before I can start helping other people in that sort of way, in that environment. Yeah, I'm not really doing anything at the moment apart from just focusing on recovery. So yes. do you think going up there for a week has helped in that respect? Yes, I think. Because I was isolated where I was. I was on my own in the Highlands and it was bliss. When I come back and there's all these problems... I've ended up isolating 
have to throw my toys out of the pram. Yeah. And a lot of my friends have gone now out of recovery. I've seen contact with them, but they're not really about. Like, a couple have relapsed. Another, like, Gareth's gone home. My circle is singular at the moment. It's just me. That's difficult in itself. So it's all a bit... Everything's up in the air a little bit. Problems at the house. So, I suppose things could be better. I said this to Ronnie outside and he said, yeah, but there could be a lot worse, which is true. I need to see that the glass is half full, not half empty. Other opportunities will come my way. If I, as long as I keep to my recovery and, and stay true to that, opportunity, more opportunities yeah. will come my way. I just need to get out of myself. I go very in myself. I'm very insular. I think, is that the word? Introverted. Introverted. Yeah, I'm very introverted and always have been. And that causes me a lot of problems. I have started talking to people about how I'm feeling and what I'm thinking, but that's not quite enough. Like I had really bad psychosis when I was in addiction, and that's kind of still there. And I've got BPD anyway, which is I'm paranoid anyway. And then that on top, I'm just got some super paranoia. Then I act out on that paranoia, not all the time, but some of the time. And just yeah, just finding it a bit difficult. And then I get sort of like depressed. And obviously, like, don't want to speak to anyone. I think one of the things is a lot of this stuff is heightened in early recovery. Paranoia is often heightened. If it's already there, take the booze and drugs away and it, it actually gets worse before yeah. it gets better. Mm -hmm. And we don't always signal this stuff up that the first year or so is problematic and that those things that are there are actually more aggravated when you're recalibrating from using all those substances to not using anything at all and it can become quite stark and quite overwhelming and before it gradually starts to level out and we all take different amounts of time to level it's more a case of doing what you've just done which is to say this is where I'm at with it rather than just blindly ploughing on like oh yeah I'll be alright because it's when we do that that we get in trouble and things like dry house problems they're always there they're always going to be there in one way or another, aren't they? Mm -hmm. You don't get away from them. But while they're always there, you can get some perspective on them if you see them for what they are. And sometimes you need that reflection to find that. Because one of the things about being overwhelmed by stuff like paranoia is that you can't see the wood for the trees. And problems appear at the wrong size. Something huge appears as something small, and something small appears as something huge and you don't have much perspective and sometimes it's a massive thing to just acknowledge that your perspective's not right yeah definitely and if you can see that your perspective is off then you can acknowledge okay I'm struggling here I need to just go back to the basics I think I've started to realise that because in my using I had psychosis and then like what Richard was saying my first year I felt particularly the first six months it, my psychosis went through the roof to the point where I was actually thinking if this is what sobriety is I don't want it because of the psychosis and I'm at a point now where it still can come in little bits and drabs but I know what it is I know that feeling that I'm having through past experience is not real that what I'm believing is happening even though it feels it and you, you're adamant and you could swear by it and you feel you could go before a judge and say oh, I know what this person's doing or saying over time I've noticed enough if I can just push it to one side that that never happened and usually I take a step back from people who, if I think they're against me, and then over time I realise that in the long run, when I look at that situation in the past, that it was my psychosis. So if I'm getting paranoid about someone, I am able now to think, 
is this just me? That kind of works for me. It's hard though. I get to a point where I'm like, oh, I don't want recovery anymore. I'm like, I'll just do it by myself. Like I'm getting really cynical about unity and connection. Yeah, 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 yeah. unity. <laughs> Stop going to meetings because I don't want to be around people. But that's when you have to force yourself. Like today, I've dragged myself. I've just been basically in my bedroom for the past week, watching TV, going downstairs, making some food, going back upstairs, watching TV, not going to meetings. And like, I spoke to my sponsor a little bit about it, and you know, he's quite gentle with me. He didn't say to do this and do that. He just sort of like suggested a few things, gave me a few kind words. Yes, yeah, so I just had to drag myself out today. I've not been getting up to like twelve o'clock each day. Mm. It's very significant, isn't it, when unity becomes just an irritating word. <laughs> and that's all it is. And it's like every time you hear it, you just bristle. And you just think, oh, they're all talking bollocks. They don't actually even like each other. They're just doing it for show. I don't want to be part of that because it's all false. I don't want all of that pretense. And just the mention of the word. It's like when you get a resentment against someone and someone only has to say their name. Mm-hmm. And you're already spoiling for a fight. No, I'm not going there because so and so said that so and so said that so and so might be there. Unity Day. Oh, what? You're just going to go and wear your best clothes, wear your best <laughs> expensive trainers and your new tracksuit, and swan about pretending to talk to people and not listening to anything that anyone's saying. That's what you're going to do, is it? Bit of unity, <laughs> bit of show off. I am like that to be fair I can't stand the word unity for some reason it's like oh, what, so what all do you like get up to then in your little uni days unity days I don't feel part of when people talk about unity for some reason I don't feel like I'm that involved because oh, it like should that. just happen without the word shouldn't it yeah. of course it should yeah I heard someone say it the other week oh let's all go to a meeting together you know a bit of unity I'm like Fuck off. Do you think that's what it's really about? Or is that a misinterpretation? It, you know what it is? It's Some people are just like childlike, aren't they? And they're just like, let's let's all go out somewhere. And I can see that sometimes in dry houses where people are more than happy to be in the dry house for ever and a day until they get booted out. So that house becomes their real home. They treat it like their home. And it is your home, obviously, but, you know, it's like their forever home. And then they want to organise the house into a, a little family, a lovely little family and everything, and it's just like... Well, it makes me cringe. I had that in a house, and they were saying that they loved each other within about two days, and I was like, it was making my toes curl. <laughs> it's just like, I, don't, I can't even love myself, let alone love someone I've just met like 10 minutes ago. But I am quite guarded anyway, yeah. and I've got a resting bitch face. Depending on my mood, but mostly at meetings, I sort of keep myself to myself. And people can sort of see that. It comes, yeah, it's quite obvious. Sometimes I can't do that performance. I do talk to people, but I'm not going to go out of my way to talk to people. There's people at meetings that I see every single week who've never said three mm. words to each other. And then everyone else knows them. I don't know whether it's just me. That social aspect of recovery is one of the hardest things for me to do. The social aspect's never really meant anything to me. It's more come as you are. A meeting's a meeting, and doesn't need to be any show about it. You know, we're all here for the same reason, I hope. We're all talking about achieving the same ends, I hope. And a meeting is not a social occasion anyway. It's difficult when people have been made to feel that they're supposed to socialise, when this is life and death and it's something we need. I can understand why some people do, because they might be naturally gregarious, and yet they've been sat in a room on their own for 18 months, and they've suddenly got these friends. All these friends, mm. several hundred of them, 
<laughs> and you don't know which one's which. You don't know which Dave is Dave, or which John is John, or which Mike is Mike. And I think it is significant, and we ought to talk about when people get pissed off with recovery and the reasons why that happens. Because I think it does happen to just about all of us, if we're honest about it. It does happen, because like I say, when I'm like listening to people and they're on about this, and they're all going out here and they're doing this and that, and I'm like, fuck off. Not interested, you know what? You can stick your recovery. <laughs> yeah. You need to start looking at yourself, sum up with you, you know, all that kind of stuff. It's like, well, why can't I just hate someone? It's like every little thing is about recovery. Like, it permeates every part of your life, and everything is like patience and tolerance, everything's you, connection, yeah. service. Ah, I just want some. I want some normality. I don't want stuff to Do you just, feel cornered? I'm not doing something for someone because I'm being of service. I'm just being nice. I feel cornered by eyes sometimes, too. It's yeah. just like, whatever you do or say, if everything's going to be my fault, and it's something to do with me, and I need to address something within myself. And Well, you're allowed to not like everybody. And so, well, that's it. I just don't like everybody. It can be a slightly contradictory sometimes, can't it? Yeah, like, can be. Yeah. Um, do you ever feel like you're in a straitjacket around meeting, like standing there? It's almost like you can't move, can't yeah, talk. Yeah, definitely. It's, uh, I feel like that sometimes with all aspects of everything. I feel it's very mundane sometimes, very, let's all smile and love each other. I mean, like, I've come with one of them movies. I love you. I went to a meeting yesterday and she, fuck it out, I love you. And it's like, Really? We've all got love for each other, but it's like, get a room. <laughs> I love you, man. I love you. Really? I think there's a great danger of these buzzwords becoming reductive and restrictive, because rather than living them, people are so busy applying the word mm -hmm. that people early on are going to feel nervy about it and think, oh, well, I better join in with this. This is obviously important. And before they know it, they're doing the same thing. And rather than actually living the life, it's about am I ticking the boxes? You know, am I ticking my unity box for the week? Did we all go out for a meal at Ming Moons? That doesn't really mean you're living it, it just means you're concocting something half the time, doesn't it? Because unity, by very definition, is about people coming together. That's really what it means, isn't it? Mm. And unified means something that is not broken. So what happens when I'm the one that feels like the broken piece? Which is pretty much what you just described. Yeah. Um, I usually speak it? to the person who also feels like that and then backs up my mm -hmm. position on the whole thing. Well, you're not going to be on your own with it. It's a question of who admits it. Because then you get the same thing where people are talking about, oh, great unity thing, and they go off and do something and three people relapse. Yeah, it's happened a lot recently. Yeah, we went yeah. to do that. Yeah, we all went. Three of us didn't come back. It happened in my organisation. Did a it? House a whole house. Went out early recovery, and I mean like weeks worth of recovery. All went to a rave, and they all relapsed on the same. Oh no! This is why I don't agree in going to raves on in early recovery. Yeah, fair enough if you've got a few years. Even but to me, that's where I did a lot of my using. That's where you know I went to raves to use. Not actually here, but round the corner from here, there was a dry rave a few years back. Yeah, how many people? And that was relapse city. Yeah, yeah. I went, went to, to a, a wet rave. rave. I wouldn't go to a dry rave. I was dragged to this wet rave, and I of course saying, "What are you taking me to a crack den where I can't smoke crack?" Do you know what yeah, I mean? Yeah. 
And to be fair, I went and I had a fantastic time. And I even managed to do sober dancing, which I've never done before, so that was good. And I really, really enjoyed it. Got offered bills, got offered this. I was looking at people's faces all smashed up and this, that, and the other. And it was good. But if I'd have gone two weeks, three weeks into my recovery, I'd oh, fuck it. I'll get away with this. I'll start my recovery again. As long as they're dry, I don't find out. It's very dangerous. I did actually buy tickets in my first few months these two girls that I was supposed to be in recovery we all bought tickets to this rave we were supposed to keep it a secret and then mm. they started telling other people oh this person's coming this person's coming we couldn't all go to this rave and then go home because people would find out so we were going to book an Airbnb and when it got to this point this was a couple of weeks before the rave it just didn't feel right to me I would have had to lie to people mm-hmm. and I know when I start lying about things like that I'll end up using on that like the lie is the beginning so I just went, I just said, no, I'm not going to go. I just paid 30 quid for this ticket. I just, you know, forget it. The, the thing is, if, you, if you're lying about a particular event, that whole event becomes a lie. Like you say, if you're just one step closer to taking that drug because you know this, no one knows I'm here anyway. And I've lied already. What's the difference? One of the things I've learned over time is if I'm engaging in something and the idea of lying crosses my mind, the question is simple. Why am I feeling I might need to lie? Because usually the honest answer to that will tell me whether what I'm doing is okay or not. Because if it's not okay, that's why I'm feeling the need to lie to X, to Y or to Z. Or it might be okay and I might be just nervous about telling whoever. But you're right, as soon as the lies get involved, you're on the slide, aren't you? Mm. And what do you do once you've lied once? Do you fess up or do you carry on lying? And it's in our nature, isn't it? Just one more. It'll be all right. I'll be out of it if I just one more. And that's why they say it's an honest programme. I've had it before. I still don't throw my rubbish on the floor and all that shit and find a 20 quid, you know, hand it to the person that dropped it and all that. I'm still like that, but I was regiment with it. So every tiny little thing, I found £30 in the back of a bus. I rang the bus depot because I didn't want to give it to the bus driver thinking he'd pocket it. And then I thought, well, no one's claimed it's what I'm going to do with it. And then I thought, right, I'll spend £30 and I'll put it in the pot to that extreme. And then I noticed I was doing a few little bits, like turning a little fib here or maybe not completing a sheet that I'm supposed to complete and just pretending and ticking the boxes and stuff. Before I knew it, everything seemed okay to cheat with, like back when I was using. You know, That's I'd, I'd the do living the honest life, yeah. isn't it? I was like, hang on a minute, I'm just blatantly saying whatever I need to say to get whatever I need to get at the minute. And it's like, and that stemmed from making one small little white lie without me even realising it. So it's just a case of, it's all on. I think like with drugs, pure abstinence, isn't it? Not a sneaky spliff here and there or something. Same with the being honest. Did you ever lie when you didn't need to in addiction? Just lie for the sake of it because you didn't know... Maybe sometimes, yeah, yeah. Not knowing the truth and the false and not caring and everything's a lie anyway, so it doesn't matter whether I tell them the truth or not. They're not going to believe me if I tell them the truth because they never have, so I might as well just say anything. I'd see stuff happening within my wet house, for example, and I'd think, like, I don't want that person to do that, I want to do this, and I'd make up a story to say, well, I've done that before, and it went like this. So I use lying to manipulate people and... But I used to lie and make up stories, and I did that when I was in treatments as well. A lot of people do that. Fantastical stories, and I was pulled up on it. I mean, I don't honestly think anyone can get through treatment without exaggeration Mm. or maximisation, minimisation, denial, dishonesty. I don't think anyone can get through treatment without those things. And they have to happen in treatment, because otherwise, what are you challenging? 
you've got to challenge the perception of people when they've just put the drink and drugs down and that's why treatment should be difficult because when you start embellishing and when you start inventing it becomes clear that that's what you're doing but the actual thing that needs challenging is the why you're doing it yeah, why well, is it that Ronnie needs to tell these fantastical tales why is it that he needs to do this and invariably the reason why we exaggerate or maximise or minimise or whatever it's a deflection tactic it's in our unconscious I don't want to talk about this so I'm going to emphasise that I don't want to go to the core of this so I'm going to say this instead and that's what it's fueling all the times. I was a great one for either maximising or minimising. Yeah, but my stories kept getting people entertained, and that's what it was. And maybe it was just for me thinking. And then like, you become a performing monkey. Yeah. Well, then I got told I've got a personality disorder by a member of staff, who then went on to get disciplined for doing so. Exactly, because they're not in a position to diagnose. No. I said, you know, we've got to disclose. We can disclose everything to our sponsors. Yeah. I says, because I've murdered somebody, yeah, and I got away with it, do I have to disclose that? And I remember the person I said it to looked at me and he went, maybe not everything, but <laughs> if we believed it. Yeah, I'm not exactly going to give you a polygraph test, are we? Oh. Right, it's your morning polygraph. <laughs> if you're going off the scale. Oh dear, we've got a bit of a zigzag going on here. <laughs> have you ever told the truth? <laughs> yes. <laughs> <laughs> I think it is important with all this stuff to acknowledge that it all happens because putting down the drink and drugs is only the beginning. And of course we don't go through treatment without lying. Of course we don't go through treatment without exaggerating or going on about how horrible the world is when we've only ever tried to do the right thing. Of course we don't go through treatment without having problems in relationships with other people. Of course we get into conflict with the people who are supposed to be helping us. Then we move on to dry houses and we get into more conflicts with people. And we either learn to cope with these things or we don't. And I think the key thing is, you know, why are you lying? Why are you getting in conflicts? Why are you doing this? It's all down to how we're dealing with recovery itself. It's all fear-based. And I'd be immensely worried if I saw someone coming through early recovery and they never questioned the idea of recovery itself. Many people don't say it, and many of those that don't say it are the ones that relapse. Because they don't say, hang on, I don't want to do this right now. And if they said, hang on, I don't want to do this right now, they'd get through it. But because they don't say it, I don't want to do this right now, then becomes that, oh, there's a pub around the corner. And it's the not voicing uncertainties, isn't it? It's kind of like blindly just performing in meetings, saying the right things. And then you hear a week later they've gone out and had a drink or... And that for me, that is why sponsors are important. Because you need a sponsor who's been around for longer, who's been through all of that. You mm -hmm. need a sponsor that's aware of all of that. And for all the way that we do our best to coexist in dry houses with other people, for all the way that we try to improve the way we relate to other people, it's sponsors that will help you through that difficult stuff more so than the people you're living with. The people you're living with can be a great help or a great hindrance, depending on who they are. However, they're not necessarily equipped with the experience to be able to say to you, well, actually, I thought that after three months, after six months. Everybody does, but not everyone says it. Whereas if you're in a dry house and everyone's not saying it, and then suddenly one person says, well, no, I don't want to fucking do this. 
And then someone else goes, no, do I. And before you know it, there are all four of you on a wave. And off you go. It's weird because the person that I have issue with in my house, I actually do like him as a person. But now I'm looking back, we've got very similar thoughts on things. He's a lot further in recovery than me. But his, his actions, I don't get it. Like, it's blagging my head because I talk to him and I get on with him. But then his actions are as if he doesn't give a shit. I'm like, what the fuck do I do? I don't know, because I don't trust people anyway, so then I'm like looking at every single word he said, everything he's done. I'm analysing every little conversation we've had, and I just don't get it. Just his actions and his words are completely different. Yeah, second-guessing myself. And top of that, you, you're paranoia as well. Yeah. <laughs> so overthinking, paranoia, like, yeah. I'm just glad I've got my sponsor and I can the fact that I went through my step four and I shared stuff with him in my step four that I would never tell anyone and then he told me stuff he shared stuff about his life I just know I can trust him and I know I can say anything to him like last night I phoned him up raging and he just listened to me let me rant yeah gave me some advice I think this disparity between words and actions is very important to understand and it's critical to point out that there's no way on earth that we can be expected to identify that disparity in the first few months in recovery. Because we can be sat there in meetings thinking, oh, so-and-so is obviously doing very well because mm. they say all the right things. And we don't necessarily equate what they're saying in the meeting with the way they behave outside because we've still got this thing of potentially putting people on pedestals because they seem to be very sober and together. And actually you get a lot of people that do that. They say what they know is the right thing in a meeting when actually it's not what's going on in their head at all. It's very difficult to spot that, isn't it, early on? Yeah, definitely. It's like, I hear people say stuff in meetings that I know very well and I'm like, that's not really the case, is it? And they answer their own problems in the meetings I say, I know I should be doing this and I know I should be doing that. And I'm a little bit like this because of that. And then you see them when they get back to their dry house and they're like, well, you're just doing exactly the opposite to what you said you was going to do. And it's like, why are you saying that in the meeting? Do you mean it in the meeting? Or are you just saying that, yeah, I know what I've got to do, but I ain't going to do it. Really, is what you should be saying then. That stops me sharing, that does. Me sounding like I know what I'm talking about. Stops mm. me. I don't share very often. I share when I feel very compelled to... But if I'm sitting there thinking, oh, I can say this, 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 and this, I don't share. Because I just know it, I'll just say that's a rubbish, and I'll be, I'll just be lying to myself. Yeah, when I think I'm giving the answers to someone else. Yeah, that's it. When I think, oh, I can do this. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And then someone else says, how dare you, that was mine. Yeah, that was yeah. mine. I was going to share that. I was going to share that. And I was going to say it better than you as well. <laughs> I think it's a humility thing, isn't it? I'm only going to say what I need to say and it's not for me to start saying things directly to other people during a meeting. It's not for me to say things for show. This is not about status. It's not about kudos. It's not about me applying gravitas to talk very wisely about how I know all about this. Because even if I'm asked to talk about a certain step or a topic or whatever, all I'm doing is sharing my experience. And that's it, isn't it? Just share your experience with yeah. whatever. And it's relating back to somebody sharing. Yes, I relate to that because of this, that, and everything. But I go to meetings sometimes, which puts me off the meeting. It's like, you've got to be doing this and you need to, and it's not worth doing it like that. And if you're not doing this, you're not doing that. And 
So what are you doing? You're telling me what to do and like I'm an addict and if you tell me to do something, I don't want to do it. Especially off someone who's probably got less clean time than me or even someone with a little bit more clean time. I yeah. just get aggravated by it. I think it's dangerous. I've seen people, the crap that comes out of their mouth is about sponsoring and going sponsoring. through the steps. And, oh, you've got to do the steps as quick as possible. Oh, when Bill was doing it, he did it in the hospital and they did it in a day and blah, blah, blah. When um, they started doing it, they hadn't written them down and they hadn't written the fucking book. Yeah, yeah, they get it all wrong. They don't know any of the traditions. They're telling you this, that, and the other. You've got to do this, that, blah, blah, blah. And I've seen their sponsees. It goes this big, long line of bullshit. And then within a few weeks, they're relapsed. It's like relaying a turd, isn't it? Yeah. <laughs> round yeah. and round and round and round. Just pass it about, like, pass the parcel. Yeah, it's dangerous. Because in 1935, yeah, they did start, and they started going around all the alcoholics in the hospital, and they got the first 94, and that was what the big book was written off the back of. They had to trial it out before they could write it down. So this idea that, no, no, we're just going to go in hospital, we're going to do the steps in 10 days flat, and then you're going to do it for someone else. You'll do them over the phone. I will have three phone calls a week. We'll get through the steps in 10 minutes, and then that's it. You can start sponsoring people. And they're sponsoring other people, passing that shit on to someone else. It's like a biological concentration. It just gets shitter and shitter and shitter the further down the line it goes. And then you've got your own recovery to look after and you've got ten of us at the same time yeah. and you haven't even finished your steps yet. And it's like, oh, okay. People only focus on that last step, step 12. Or Everything should go at the pace at which it suits the person in recovery. Exactly. When you come into recovery, it doesn't matter if it takes you... 10 months or 10 years, as long as you're still turning up and you've still got your arse in the seat. I've always been told this, if you're looking at someone else's recovery, you're not looking at your own. So Absolutely. These people are quite comfortably sitting in step 12, jumping straight to step 12, because what all of a sudden they don't have to look at their own recovery, they're looking at everyone else's, telling them how to do theirs and not doing anything about their own. So whilst they're sponsoring 10 people, they might be all right and feel like they're in the boat, but when they actually sit down and when they're in their own time doing their own thing so the first thing they'll do is ring up yeah when I'm fucked I ring a sponsee and I help them because that helps me and it's like he's helping you because you're not looking at yourself you're just helping other people I do find that a little bit and do you think when annoying. people go into this big show of having lots of sponsees it strikes me that that's not really altruism it's not I'm going to help people without expecting a reward what it really is, it's fucking ego half the time. Because they'll tell you in every single meeting when they share, oh, I'm yeah. sponsoring. And you're thinking, who are you again? I don't come here every week. Who are you again? There's always someone turning up who says they're the bee's knees and that they've known everything in their great lengthy recovery. Now I was wondering what it was, because my phone's playing up. You know, the other week it was in another room and it started playing this heavy metal music. And it really? Was, yeah, just out of the yes. blue. What, like, independently? Started playing metal music? Just a sign was from your higher power. To <laughs> it was a song from the Wicker Man as well. And I was sitting in the limb room of this house that these people had just moved into. It was like a moving in little thing. I could hear this music. This was that noise. And everyone was looking around. And it was my phone just decided to play some tunes in the other room. It was weird. And I just thought that maybe my phone. Where is my phone? It's a machine. It's got a mind of its own. And there it is. The machine is taking over. They will have soon. I hope not. I read it in the air papers this morning. Well, they can claim that all they like. We were talking about this last week, weren't we, Ronnie, about how there are some instances where machines couldn't possibly replace people. Yeah, yeah of course, because it's just electricity, isn't it? It's just a wire. We can think, is this good? Is it bad? Do we want a good result or do we want a bad result? 
do we want to cause harm, do we not want to cause harm? And the thing about AI and all of that is that if you ask it to retrieve certain information, it will do all of that. But the one thing that AI is not going to be able to do is predict human behaviour. <laughs> or the weather. Are, we are by nature unpredictable, aren't we? And those of us who land in rooms like these are particularly unpredictable. Well, we were talking about the robot barman, weren't we? And the idea that you would be in a hospital bed at the end of your tether over booze and drugs hooked up to all these bloody tubes and everything. And a frigging robot comes in and says, now, have you decided you want to give up? You start telling the story. What does the robot do? <laughs> it comes out with a story it's learned from something it's retrieved off the web. But has it got a heart? Has it got a soul? No. It's balmy, isn't it? For me, a robot sharing would be like one of those vanity shares we've just been talking about. A robot sharing would be the same thing. No, you're a machine. You haven't been there, done that. We'd always have the best answers. They'd have to be like Bender, wouldn't they? They'd have to actually have been there, done it. Futurama would be a great pointer for how to do AI, wouldn't it? You just want robots to all be like Bender. Reckless, irresponsible, alcoholic robots. Oh, yeah, I forgot. He, he likes to drink, doesn't he? He's drunk most of the time, the robot in Futurama. And that with the square head and the square body and the nose, that wizard was. It's a roundish head with a little antenna thing on top of it. It's hilarious. I'm just flicking it. through images in my head of robots I'm drinking. Well, you're going back to what you were saying about listening to music in your car. The type of music you listen to. Balmy. Because it was just such a nice drive this morning. And there was Egypts on the road, but I let them be. And I just cruised. It was almost like I was in a trance, a nice meditation mode. I mean, compared to driving in the fast lane, trying to get into this lane and planning my journey like five miles ahead, right? I'll get through there. He'll fuck off. He's bound to try and cut me up there. He won't see the marking. She will, whatever. And then just coast along the car in front of you in the left lane and realise that when I got to the end of the road, the cars that was racing ahead, they're still next to me anyway. <laughs> and I've saved fuel. There's something I'm a little bit in denial about because I listen to a lot of metal and punk mainly. When I'm in a bad mood and I'm listening to that, there's a lot of different subgenres of metal. So I listen to lots of different ones. It depends on the sound and the atmosphere of said music it can make me a little bit angrier sometimes depending on my mood though in general like if i start listening to black metal and i'm depressed i'll usually stay depressed but it depends on like some of it can be uplifting yeah because yeah, i like yeah. it and i've been listening to it since i was a kid and that was my escape when i was a kid before i found drugs and alcohol music was my escape so i've got like that connection to it but i have to sometimes do now I have to watch what I'm listening to at certain points. It's the same as films that I'm watching or programmes that I'm watching. I have, mm, yeah. watch. I have to be really careful about what I'm... And what you watch last thing at night as well. Yeah, yeah. If you watch something last uh -huh. thing at night. Which is weird because I've never been like that, ever. I've always just watched like loads of horror and psychological thrillers and stuff like that. Some of them are really anxiety-inducing. I've certainly changed my listening habits and my viewing habits in recovery. And it's gone, it's ebbed and flowed over the time I've been sober, but certain things would change pretty much straight away because, as any good musicologist will tell you, playing certain types of music at certain times of the day will have a marked effect on your behaviour and on the way you view other people. And driving plus music 
if you're playing the wrong music, would be very problematic, as Ronnie has found. Well, it's not the music, it's the other people on the road. The music but is what escalating what you're feeling. Yeah, music has helped. It's like having a beta block or whatever, you know, a Valium to calm you down. What you've done this morning is you've actually, instead of fueling your anger, you've softened it by the music you chose. Whereas if you're playing dance music, you are fueling your anger. I wouldn't say fueling it. The anger comes from the bad driver. No, that's what I mean. You're fueling it by the music because you're already angry and the music is escalating it for you. Whereas if you play the reggae, your anger is still going to be there, but your anger is not expressed because the reggae brings you down. It's what any good musicologist will tell you Mm. because at any given time during the day, depending on what we're doing, listening to certain things will have certain effects. And there's a reason why people listen to certain types of music when they're on the treadmill or when they're training. Do you think if you're putting yourself in the dating scene to watch romantic films will help? It might hinder. Romantic films are going to give you this pretty pink idealised view of what romance is like is one thing. The other thing is that it's going to keep it at a constant in your mind. I need a partner. Yeah, 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 yeah. And all that shit. There is a huge effect that external stimuli will have on our overall mood and aspect. And if you pick something that is going to raise your awareness, heighten you to what's around you, which is something that's probably with a raised BPM, it will have an effect, and it can have an effect on you physically too, even if you're not dancing. Whereas if you're playing something that softens you and that calms you, it means you don't act on your anger. Your anger's still there. It's just you've dealt with it. Yeah. I even felt quite smug driving around <laughs> with Bob Marley in the background. It's a nice achievement. It wasn't Bob Marley, it was UB40. For you to actually come in and not be shouting and screaming about other drivers. Because the number of times you've been in and done that. Well, it was taking a, a more sinister turn and my thought patterns was getting more sinister so I thought I really need to do something about it because it's turning me to something that I'm not well yeah absolutely but then that's the thing when it's a constant and it keeps escalating not thinking of me. that's what it ends up being isn't it it ends up being this version of you that isn't really you anyway we have run out of time was the pity what a shame that Gareth went back to London sometimes they do it's like I said to Aaron this morning quite cynically I went oh he's fixed then some people in recovery have still got a life which they haven't lost at yeah. that point. It's easy for me to think, oh no, what? you can't go to work, sorry. Anyway. Some people come into recovery and they still manage to keep their jobs. So obviously, if they can go back to it and maintain the recovery as well. Then keep the job, keep the house. Yeah. And obviously, Gareth's yeah. got a flat in London, he's got his daughter, so as long as he keeps up, which I'm sure he will because he's very switched on, like that, he'll be finding his groups down there and his meetings and. Well, because he was in recovery before, he was working in a treatment centre and he worked in hostels and all sorts. He had some massive clean time before he relapsed again. He's got a lot of connection down where he's at and the meetings where he's... Yeah, yeah it's a perfectly logical move, isn't it? Yeah, definitely. We'll just have to conscript some more happy campers, won't we? Uh-huh. We shall try, we'll keep trying. And in fact, of course, we'll just ask Brother Neil to do it for us, as oh, he usually yeah. does. So without further ado, that's that for this week. If you... I've heard anything that's resonated with you for whatever reason concerning yourself or anyone else, do reach out, do seek help. There's plenty out there. You can Google recovery or any variant on recovery or AA or NA or CA or whatever other organisation.
out. There is plenty out there and you can find it and it doesn't all cost money. With that, we will see you next week. Well, you'll hear us next week. Have a lovely weekend, have a lovely weekend. It's goodbye for me. Thanks, gents. Thank you. Thank you. Good night.